Good morning. Good morning. The scripture today is found in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the world, word of life, excuse me, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite our children forward to have a story right up here on the platform. This is a story that's about a time when I wanted to share something about God with somebody, but I didn't have anything other than my words and and a simple, small item. I was traveling back and forth on a bus from Roseburg, Oregon to the community college. The community college at Umpqua Community College is outside of town. You may have heard about Umpqua Community College with a shooting a while back. That's where I went to college for about a year. And as I was going back and forth on that bus, I would always take with me some kind of, either I would take my Bible and I would have literature tucked in here. Out there in the ways you come in, there's a literature rack. And and I would take a little piece of literature with me, or three or four or five, sometimes even ten, and I'd put them in my pocket. And I would, on that bus, before I would get done going home from college that day, or going out to college that day, I would make sure to hand out all the literature I had. Well, one day... I ran out of literature, and I was on my way home, and my twin brother and I were sitting together, and he's like, it's your turn. Now, what he meant was, he was kind of scared to talk to the guy in front of me, but since he had talked to the last person on the bus that we had talked to, he said, it's your turn, so you go ahead. So I said, well, I don't have any literature. I'm all out. He's like, well, I have this bookmark, and it was a bookmark that was it was a green color, kind of like the green right here on your, on, on your sandal here, kind of a, a real bright green, like that shirt, kind of between that shirt and this sandal here, kind of a bright green. It was made out of ribbon material, like shiny, and it had gold letters on it. It had Psalm 23 on it. In Psalm 23, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Well, that day, as I reached over the person's shoulder, and I, I kind of uh, quickly said, hey, here's something you might want to read. And right over their shoulder, just right, turn this way, right over their shoulder, here's something you might want to read. How would, that feel? How would you react to that? Well, he was a little surprised. Oh, okay. And that's where I left it. Well, I noticed him looking at the bookmark for quite a while. And he must have gotten down through that part about even though I may walk through the valley of the shadow of death. By now, after a couple of minutes, you would think. Well, he turned to me and he said, thank you. And then he began to, cr- basically tears were coming down. And I thought, oh no, you know, <laughs> not one of those times where... I guess I didn't do a good job, or, or I upset the guy, or something, you know. But a man crying doesn't typically happen, at least not in my household. It, it didn't really happen growing up. So he was either upset, or he was totally saddened, or he's just overjoyed. I didn't know how to take it. And he said, I'm riding home today, and I was planning on committing suicide. He was going to kill himself. But he read that bookmark. And he got down to that part about, even though I may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you were with me. He said, I needed God to tell me today. I asked God to tell me today that he was with with me. And you gave me this bookmark. And I want to thank you. You saved my life. And I'm thinking, whoa. (laughs) This is one of those times where you don't expect that. But can it be like that? 
Maybe we don't feel like we have a whole lot to give to people. Sometimes it could just be the kind action. Sometimes it could be the bookmark instead of the piece of literature you thought was what everybody needed to hear. But God may use you and me to save somebody's life. Maybe not from killing themselves. It could be, well, they would get down a ways in their lives and they wouldn't care about anybody else and then Jesus would come and, and they wouldn't want to be with him and they would, be, they would lose their lives. They would, they would die outside of his presence. But God wants each one of us to share with those around us your smiles, your encouraging words, your kind actions, and maybe even a little bookmark or a piece of literature sometime. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for each young person here and their families represented. I pray the blood of Jesus over them and their families. I pray that you can guide them each day through stories, through learning from you, to be, help them be the children that you would have them to be all the way to the new earth. I want to see each one of them there, Lord. And so please guide their paths. And Lord, if we need to encourage them or they need to encourage us or we all need to encourage somebody else, give us the right timing to do it, Lord. We trust you with that. Bless each child here, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for coming up. Let's have an added word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for this morning. Thankful we can open up your word. Thankful that as we overcome in our lives, it could be a certain issue or a certain situation, but as we overcome in our lives, we can be better conduits, better witnesses for you. And so guide us to see this truth today with the clarity that only the Holy Spirit can bring. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pergos, from which we get the town named Pergamum, was a fortified structure. It was considerable in height. It was used to repel a hostile attack or enable a watchman to see in every direction. That's what Pergos, which the town Pergamum, meant. But sometime later, we find that another city in the area was founded. Eumenes II went from Pergamum this place where it was fortified, this place where you could defend, this place where you could basically, from there, branch out and start a kingdom empire. That's what his goal was, the kings of Pergamum's goals were, to eventually start other cities. And we find an example of this, and I'm going to read some of this, and some of it's from memory. But Eumenes II, he fought many battles along with his brother. And his brother, of course, his name is Atalus II, as a result of their many battles that they fought together, they developed a strong kingdom in which they even threatened to rival, at least in those areas, the forces of Rome at the time. The Greek Empire was kind of going downhill. The Roman Empire was gaining prominence. And so later it would become part of the Roman Empire, but at the beginning it seemed to be a threat to the Roman Empire. At least they saw it as such. Rome sensed that Eumenes could be a potential threat. He, he began, they began to try to woo his brother, Attalus, to turn on his brother and take the throne, thinking that Attalus, who had been to many of these battles and had won them on behalf of his brother, could then be their ally, turn against his brother, and then give the Romans a foothold in that area. They especially tried to do it during the Third Macedonian War, a war in which involved the Spartans and the Macedonians and Greeks, and now this attempt was made. He did not turn on his brother. In fact, we find the record that Eumenides established Philadelphia in honor of his brother's loyalty. His brother would not turn upon him. His brother would not go ahead and betray him. His brother, even though he, at one point, Eumenides left and they thought he was dead, Atalus marries Eumenides' wife. But then Eumenes is found alive. So he divorces his brother's wife and says, this is your throne, this is your wife. I am basically a servant. That type of attitude we find recorded in historical accounts. Attalus eventually does ascend the throne, but it's only after his brother's death. He does marry his brother's wife, but it's only after his brother's death. He does expand the kingdom, but he doesn't join with the Romans right away. He expands it, his father's kingdom, and he founds the town Italia. You can find all that on various sources. The most common one is Wikipedia. You can find it on historical sources, especially you look at the documents down below there. One commentator wrote it this way. This city, Philadelphia, was founded about 140 B.C. Italus II that's the brother who would not betray his 
his other brother, was also known as Philadelphus. The name of the city was derived from his royal nickname. Basically, he loved his brother. He intended that it would serve as a center for the spread of Greek culture throughout the region, especially to the people of Phrygia. It was situated on a fertile plain. It was rich with vineyards and wine production. And so he has this royal nickname, which we know of as a city name, Philadelphia, that was given to him. It was actually given to him by his brother. That's who started the nickname. Here is brotherly love. I looked at that story, and you can read it from different angles, different historical documents if you want to. No matter how you read it, it looks to be very telling for our time today. A relationship of love rather than betrayal. A relationship that developed into what became this city with a strategic location for the spread of the Greek culture. It was also well situated to help take the gospel eventually to the then known Roman world. God had his plan even in this pagan system. And his plan was that the gospel would go to the Roman world. Interesting, though, that it happens at a place that denotes this brotherly love. So as we think about the idea of being an overcoming witness, we talked before at communion about how an overcoming witness dies to self so that Christ might live through them. Those two brothers, you have an example of that, just a human relationship where that takes place. But this is more than that. This is where God, my will needs to die so that your will can be done. An overcoming witness also focuses on the truth or the words of Jesus, his works and his words. And the third thing we found last time was that an overcoming witness overcomes, basically makes it all the way through by holding fast, standing firm all the way to the end. They're standing firm because of Jesus. So as we look at the seven churches and we're progressing now from Sardis, to this one of worldwide mission. This is where we're going. And you can recognize that we are right here as a church. Locally, conference-wise, nationally. This is where we should be, right here as a church. I know that we say, well, we're a Laodicean church. But really, the cure for the Laodicean church is the outward focus. We know it has to do with the relationship with Jesus. But that relationship is not found in a cloister, is not found in it's actually found in an outward expression. That story that I told about the bookmark. A bookmark saving somebody's life. A bookmark that I had received time and time again from my grandfather and I threw away before I was a Christian. And now I'm sharing that bookmark with somebody else. I mean, it looked cheesy. The green color. It's like one of those old ancient green colors of carpet or something. And I'm handing this thing out and it saves somebody's life. That's the time in which we're living right now. There are souls going to the graves without ever hearing that loving touch from the Father. Some of them were within our reach. And so I know that we talk about Laodicea, but I believe we get into the Laodicean condition Partly because we lose the apostolic fervor. Partly because when persecution comes, we fall away. We begin to unite with other forces rather than with God. And the only thing that kicks us out, if you notice in this history, is a reformation and a worldwide mission. Do you notice it goes reformation, orthodoxy, worldwide mission, infidelity. There's this back and forth. That's where we are at. We are each in the valley of decision even today. And it behooves us that there are those outside of this building who are also in the Valley of Decision. They may not know it, but they need us to know it. They need us to be the ones who are well-situated. Alan read that offering appeal. We are well-situated in North America to reach the world. To reach the world. Because the world has come to our very doorsteps. We need Adventist Frontier Missions right here. That's what we need, each one of us. We are on the frontier. And so, as I think about this one here, and the church of Philadelphia, and I think about how these, these pagan rulers, if you will, could show that type of love towards each other, and then begin expanding out, united together in battle, united together in love, united together in establishing their kingdom, how about us? Can we unite together to establish Christ's kingdom, established on the cornerstone himself, I think the answer is yes, it is possible.
So we go to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, you can turn to your version if you'd like to. This one is up on the screen just for ease of taking us through it. You'll notice at the end of each one of these quotations, there's usually a reference. So if you somehow are getting lost or somehow you wonder where I'm at, I'll put the quotation up there. And my remote is gone, so I'm going to be going back and forth between this screen and there. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no one can shut, and that shutteth and no one openeth. That's, a quite, that's quite a few descriptive characteristics of Jesus, don't you think? He's been doing the speaking all along. This is a, a, a message from him again. Let me move this down. And so the messenger at that church was supposed to come in the name of the one who is holy, to come in the name of the one who is true, the one that has the key of David, who opens and no one can shut, who shuts and no one can open. That expression there almost reminds you, because talking about the holiness and eventually fates being open or closed one way or the other, you find a similar expression when probation or the time for this world ends down at the end of Revelation. Let he who is holy continue to be holy. Let he who is unholy continue to be unholy. There's these two types of outcomes. There's no middle ground. We live in a time, if, if we will, if you want to consider it right now, of, of some kind of middle ground, but each time we hear a message, each time we deliver a message, a judgment is taking place. Either in our hearts or in the hearts of somebody else. A decision is being made. But this comes from Jesus. He tells the church, I know your works. Behold, I have set before thee a door open which none can shut, that thou hast little power and didst keep my word and didst not deny my name. North America as a whole, as far as Seventh-day Adventist Church, we are aging. Okay? We may appear to have little power, but as that song says, faith is the victory and we must engage the foe. We must have a final push here in North America. So if you're tired, I encourage you to go to the strength, for strength himself, Jesus Christ, and say, Lord, give me that final strength I need to make that final push in my life to my neighbors, to my friends, to my family, because I want you to be glorified, Father. And really, in, it's in the sharing that we say our hearts are themselves are saved. And not that we're somehow working our way, not somehow our witness becomes a checklist of some kind, but it somehow changes our hearts in the process. It draws us closer to Jesus as well. And he tells this church, even though it looks like you have little power, a door has been opened to you. I would say this to you and to anybody in my hearing, whether it's on the internet or somewhere else, the church in North America is not finished. The door has been placed before us and it is open. It's just a matter of us adapting to the necessity of the times, Ellen White says. They may recall that quotation, and she talks about different methods have to be developed that we had not even thought about before. What will it take to reach those young people across the street? What will it take to reach, if you want to have a future generations for this church, the young people that you would have see in this building? What would it take that once we even get them here, let's say dysfunction and all kinds of behavior problems come along with it, what kind of patience are we going to need? and skills to deal with that. I worked in an inner city situation in Benton Harbor, Michigan. And if you've ever been to Benton Harbor, Michigan, the church plant there, this big, gigantic building, it was rented. That pastor of that Sunday-keeping church gets paid over a hundred and some thousand dollars a year for 12 people, okay? And he has a car paid for, his house is paid for by that congregation, and, he's, and he basically said, well, I'm just gonna minister to my congregation. Well, the Adventist church comes along and says, well, can we rent your building? And so they rent this building called the church New Plant. I mean, not even that creative. And what do we have coming? Young people. They're flooding in because they're not getting the food that they need. The money's being spent elsewhere and being used for other things. They don't, they don't have safe places to come for activities. They, they come with knives in their pocket, and a little boy pulls it out and tries to stab another one. That's what we were dealing with. I don't think you're going to get quite like that here. So if it makes you uncomfortable and makes you feel uncomfortable for us to have an influx, then more than likely the rain will, will cease here. The sky will become like brass here. But I think if we would allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and say, yes, there are young people. Yes, there are people of older age. There are people in between. All these people right here that we can reach. 
that then an open door will be appear before us. And then the question is, will we walk through it? It will take lots of power, which we do not have. And it will take the key, one who has the key of David, who in Revelation, we find he's called the root of David. Root and offspring. Interesting expression for Jesus. He's the root. In other words, before David, that's why Jesus said, why does David call him Lord? Well, because he was before David. Offspring of David, because he came through the line of David. This is the one who comes to us with the key of David. And what is his desire? Well, we know that he has access to all humanity. And if you look at the idea of the key of the house of David, and you study that out, what you find is it's given to a ruler. A ruler who is, yes, we know, talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and all of that, but, but a ruler who opens a door that no one can shut. This is none other than an allusion to the coming Messiah himself. It's, we talk about Eliakim and that being him, but it's not him. It says here, and this is Isaiah chapter 22, verse 20, then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. And you say, well, Eliakim, did he change the world? Well, no, actually, what you find, it's almost one of those times where you're talking about an earthly king or an earthly situation, just like out of Bethlehem, this idea of a virgin conceiving, it's talking about an original situation, but it's having an echo down through time. This is one of those tips situations where, yes, it's talking about a particular situation, but who comes and has authority, and who comes and opens a door that no one can shut? Jesus says, I'm the one who does that. You don't have to go looking in Scripture for an answer to who this is really going to be talking about. It had an original fulfillment, but it had a broader fulfillment in Jesus. Because he himself says, I'm the one who has this key. And so the key of David, this may refer to a literal insignia worn by the chief administrator. Even so, it would still symbolize the administrator's authority to grant or exclude access to the king. So you have... In a kingly court system, the, the top administrator, think of Daniel or somebody like that, they have access to the king. And they have something that signifies that they have access to the king. And if they grant you access to the king, you can go in before the king. Other kingdoms, you think of the scepter, you think of other, other mechanisms to give, grant access to the king. But we're talking about the key of David, so we're going to keep it Israelite and in focus here. This symbolizes rulership and authority that's been given to somebody to grant others access to the king. And Jesus says, I have that. So he is not just saying, go to all the world and tell them something that's good and makes them feel peaceful and, and all of that. He's saying, tell them something that will result in them being the kind of people that will have access to the king. Crowns on every head. That's how we picture it. Every child, when I pray that prayer, guide them to be the kind of people you'd have them to be all the way to the new earth. What am I saying? I'm saying a blessing upon those children. I'm saying I'm not just content with them knowing Jesus here and now. I'm not just content with them seeing Jesus come in his splendor and they're resurrected. I'm not just content with the great white throne judgment. I'm not just content with the earth coming, being cleansed with fire. I'm not just content with them being inside the city and God's army ruling and winning. I'm content only until they see the earth made new and they are there with us. That's my prayer. And so here you have Jesus saying, all authority has been given to me. Where else do we see this? It's pretty clear. You know the text, Matthew 24. Jesus himself came to them and spake to them, saying, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore, make disciples of all the nations. The nations are in tumult. The nations are in a state of wondering right now. And all you have to do, and Jake is my witness, is talk to a Muslim coordinator, Muslim ministry coordinator for our union. And you will, know, you will find out from that Muslim coordinator who's trying to reach out to the Muslims in our area that they are looking for people of the book. 
They are confused. And they were told from their own writings that when the time came, when it seemed like things were dark, when things were confusing, you're to seek out the people of the book. You read your union paper, and you'll find, you think, well, these are ecumenical things going on in the church. They are not. What we find is the opposite is also happening in the church, where teachers of Muslim faith are contacting the Seventh-day Adventist pastors and saying, we know that you have the truth. You keep the right... It's like visions and dreams are coming to these guys, and they could literally stand in a foyer and greet all kinds of ecumenical Sunday pastors and all this, and they greet the Seventh-day Adventist pastor and say, now which church do you belong to? And I'm not being facetious, and I'm not being somehow prideful, but they shake the hand and say, can I talk to you a moment? And, and they basically drag that Adventist pastor aside. Why? Because they're looking for people who study the Bible and who actually can point them in the right direction, who have an understanding of the end times, who have a lifestyle that is, in con- is not contrary to the Word of God, and who look forward and are basically Muslims in their minds, who have a way of life rather than just a fact or that keep the wrong day because they're like, what's wrong with all these guys out there? And the Adventist pastor isn't going to sit there and bash all those guys, but basically saying, well, I'm following what I know. I'm following what I find in the Bible. And that's what's going on right now. The nations are searching. The people around us, you know why they're so addicted to gadgets and gizmos and things like that? It's because they're searching for something. That's why you go on the internet, isn't it? You're looking for something. People spend hours looking for something. And I'm not saying that it's bad to do research and all that. You can do that all on the internet. But what are we looking for? Why, does it, why is it that we have, we've gone from like a few hours of TV per day to this huge, gigantic load of TV per day and media and all of that? And there's more time spent with that than with mother or father. Well, by the way, they're divided anyway. They're broken up homes and all this. It's because people are thirsty and hungry. And before we condemn and can criticize them, ask yourself the question, When's the last time I offered them something that was better than what they have? I offered them. Not the preacher, not the elder, not the teacher, not, you know, not your minist- different ministries. When's the last time I personally went to somebody like that? Got to know them. Sat down with them. Whatever. Find a way to know what their thirst was and then show them how Jesus quenches that thirst. Jesus is the one who says all authority has been given Go, make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is complete oneness relationship. Teach them to observe all things whatsoever commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So we teach them how to be followers of Jesus. We baptize them. We teach them more. And then they are the ones who are going. This is what the church in Philadelphia was was all about, was supposed to be about, at least we find record of it being about. It appeared weak, and yet he comes and says, I have this huge open door before you. He wanted them to walk through it. And so the key of David, we know it's referring to authority to grant or exclude access to the king. We know that Jesus is saying an open door is there before you and before everybody else. There's access to the king. Then therefore go out and bring them to the king. Look at Jesus' kingdom parables. You'll find... Very, quite a few examples of this idea of either sowing, it's an outward focus, this idea of going and inviting, this idea of a banquet. What, what is that all about? Well, first of all, he's using the language of the day that they'll understand. Second of all, he's making a point that's timeless, which is saying, we all have this work to do. And what are the, what are the sleeping virgins really there to do anyway? They all slept, we know that. What, were their, what was their task? Any ideas? They were, go to port, they were supposed to be part of the procession to point to the bridegroom. And so we find this same idea. This ruler will come who will reign forever, who is revealed through some kind of mystery. Look at Colossians chapter 4. Paul tells him, continue steadfastly in prayer, watching therein with thanksgiving, with all praying for us also that God may open unto us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. What is the door in Paul's mind? It's this mystery of Christ. A mystery. Isn't it a mystery that even if you have an earthly father who doesn't really seem to love you, 
that here comes Jesus saying, I'll show you the true Father. Who holds you accountable, yet loves you. And some people don't like the word unconditional. All right. Loves you with everlasting love. That is a mystery that we cannot fully unpack. Or you have a situation where you come along and society condemns you. Lost cause. And yet Jesus comes along and says, no, you'll be my ambassador. That's who stands before you now. This is a mystery. Or he could say, you've gone to church your whole life. Maybe just gone through the motions. Maybe not really that excited about it. Maybe required to be here, whatever. Maybe you felt that way at one point. But I can take that and turn it into something that's a little bit more magnificent. That you want to be here. That you're actually trying to learn something that you can take to impact your life and those around you. You're not just clocking in a time card, but you want to be here. That's a mystery that he could take a heart and do all of that. And many more situations that I'm not even talking about. So Paul says there was a door for the word that was open. He talks about situations where he was forbade to go or forbidden to go to one place, but he was told to go to another place. That's an open door. And so he says, this is the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. He's willing to be locked up for this mystery that I may make it manifest or unfold it as I ought to speak. So the mystery that Paul's talking about is knowing Christ, speaking of Christ, taking that which you know and telling somebody else. If you don't know personally what it's like to be at peace with God, you have no gospel to share with anybody else. If I don't, I'm going to use the word I now, I'm not saying it's necessarily my experience, but I'm going to put it in the first person so you can all think I'm not pointing the finger at you. You can use the word I and you can let it echo in your mind. If I, for some reason, feel that Christianity is a grudging experience, what do I have to offer to the world? They've already got enough of that. There's a daily grind of work. There's after work. There's the yard that needs to be mowed. There's, I mean, start making the list that goes on in your life. And imagine everybody else's life. That is not something that you can really give to somebody as saying that this is appealing. And more than likely, I'm not going to pronounce judgment, but more than likely, if it's a grudging experience, if you really don't know him and know peace in your heart from him, then you're going to be lost. And I'm talking to people now that I need to give you an appeal. And that is this. 1 John says, These things I write to you that you may know that you have eternal life. There is no excuse not to know. And he's the kind of God that it says in Proverbs 24, 16, a righteous person falls seven times and rises again. He's the kind of God that says, I'm willing to help pick you up. He's the kind of God who says, when you were little, I picked you up and carried you like Ephraim. This is the kind of God who comes to you and says, no matter what your background has been, no matter what sin you think is so heinous, or no matter what fakeness you've ever had in your life, I can forgive you of that. I can make it real. I can give you, grant you forgiveness and pardon. And the cross shows how real he is. Torturously real. And so I would say, it's pretty simple. If you don't know that peace abiding in your heart, if you don't really deep down know that if you were to die right now, you would have eternal life, if you don't know that, then pray this sinner's prayer. God, here's my life. It's a mess. Take control of it. Is it that simple? That's the beginning of a very simple prayer. That's the prayer that I pray. And whatever that mess looks like, he will come along in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. No one need to leave here with the idea that, okay, the gospel is going to all the world and then the end's going to come and I'm afraid of the end. We all need to leave this place knowing that our hearts are right with the Lord. So if you've made that commitment, I praise the Lord for that. If you need to make that commitment, make it today. Or leave this place, or after the service, sit here in this place and say whatever you need to say to God. Today is an open door. If you hear his voice, 
Listen to it. Because Revelation chapter 3 says the door of the church that ends up being closed at the end of time. It's not Jesus' fault. It's basically the church, for whatever reason, doesn't let Jesus in. He's knocking. He's saying, I'm willing to come in. But each one of us have to respond. We've heard that appeal. But we get to the church of Laodicea next week. And there's no point in me preaching that sermon if you think it's going to be some, hey, we're Laodicean. We're, we better, our names are coming up in the judgment. Yeah, our names are coming up in the judgment. But what good is it for you to know that if you don't know the mercy of God? So Philadelphia represents a period of time when Christians began to freely speak of Christ. It happened in the first century. It happened later on in history. It also represents a cure for Laodicea, a cure for each one of those wayward churches in the seven churches. It represents letting Christ in. There's an open door. Open door here, an open door out. But if you notice from the text, they had problems. Behold, I give of the synagogue of Satan... Basically, this words, these words. Of them that say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. If you come here acting a certain way or being a certain type of person, and I'm using the word you as a finger pointing this time, look in the mirror and, and see yourself when I'm saying it. If, if you come here one kind of person and you leave here, and you're a different kind of person, there's something wrong with that. That is the word hypocrite. You say, no, hypocrites always say one thing and do it. No, you got it wrong. In the Greek, a hypocrite is a play actor on the stage, has a mask. They can change that mask. You don't even know that that's the same actor as going along in the play. It could be the same actor for five or ten different parts. It's exhausting. But they, would, they could do it. And the most talented actors, we could go, orators could speak for hours. And so, hypocrite. Mask on, another mask on. That's why Jesus was so harsh with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He said, you're liars. You're a den of thieves. You look one way, you go up to the offering plate, and you throw it all in there. And, but behind that mask, when that widow comes up and drops her mites, you're thinking, you cheapskate. That, that's behind the mask. But you don't admit that you basically took away her house and home. And you don't admit that when her husband died, you didn't give her any work in gleaning your fields. Okay, so that's behind the mask. That's what we're talking about here. People who appear to be one way, but are not. That's living a lie. And the Bible says in Revelation, last chapter, those who are outside the city live and practice a lie. So here is a church where he's encouraging them, move forward, you've got an open door and all that, and then he pauses and says, well, i got something to say to those who think they're of God, but they're not. That's what this idea of a Jew, but are not a Jew. Paul and them don't, don't have this distinction idea between Jews and Greeks. It's the idea of the gospel is the church of all nations. So you have, what is this expression meaning? It's like in Galatians. You find he talks about those who are of Abraham's seed are heirs according to the promise, and those who believe in Jesus are heirs according to the promise. You have the same idea. He had people in the church claiming to be Christians, but for whatever reason, they live a lie. That can only be cured by recognizing your condition. Now, daily we have to recognize our tendency towards this, but recognize our condition and say to Jesus, I want to be the person you want me to be. Not what my job wants me to be, or this person wants me to be, or these people want me to be, or society has an expectation upon me to be, but what you want me to be. It says, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, so before the true worshipers, and to know that I have loved thee. It's sad, isn't it? At the very end, people will be lost who, because they don't even know that Jesus loves, they want to accept Jesus loves them. But they'll fall before the ones who are the true worshipers of God. Almost reminds you of the wheat and the tares, and, and you find the goats and the sheep. Separation occurs at some point, and they come before and they acknowledge great white throne judgment. He shows them everything he ever did, and, and he's like, I did it for you, and I did it for everybody else, and look, these ones are saved. And they have to acknowledge and bow the knee that he was loving. Because thou didst keep my word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of trial. Now he goes back to the faithful ones. 
Keep the words of my patience. That hour which is to come upon the whole world to try them to dwell upon the earth. I come quickly. Hold fast that which thou hast, that no one can take thy crown. Synagogue of Satan is pretty clear. And if my words weren't clear enough for you, read this December 4, 1900 Review and Herald article. You can go on the internet and get it. It says, Christ speaks of the church over which Satan presides as the synagogue of Satan. Its members are the children of disobedience. You say, well, that means they don't keep God's commandments. Well, they could keep God's commandments. You look at 1 John, you find he talks about them keeping the commandments, and then he says, but you hate your brother. You're walking in darkness. Eventually you're going to be blind. They are those who choose to sin, who labor to make void the holy law of God. Choose to sin. Knowingly see the sin. Partake of the sin. And continue in the sin. Which means they eventually become traitors of the sin. Like you have with the whole fruit experience in the Garden of Eden. She went and she gave the fruit to Adam. So you find they choose to sin who labor to make void the holy law of God. We're not just talking about those who aren't keeping the Sabbath. This is going to, if you keep reading this whole article, it's talking about in the church, for whatever reason, we don't accept God's mercy and God's sacrifice and what he's done for us and the change he wants to bring, and we make void the law of God. We, we try to keep it, and it basically says, okay, I'm better than you. I've arrived. You become the law when you do that. And then you get rid of the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus because what did he die for? So she has article after article where she lays this out. This is just one of them. It is Satan's work to mingle evil with good, to remove the distinction between good and evil. I'm saying it's evil. It is evil to pretend. We're living in a time when it's evil to pretend. I'd rather have you come here wearing common clothes and being who you are than basically dressing up and being somebody you're not. Let's get rid of the whole idea. I mean, I understand. We're in God's house. And, you know, I went into a casino when I wasn't a Christian, and I wore a suit and a tie. Okay, I'm not saying, I'm not, you know, it was a special occasion, and, and I understand this is a special occasion, but let the Holy Spirit be your guide on that. Because I would rather have you be real. That's my main point. Not whether you wear suits or ties. I'd rather have, or dresses or whatever. I would rather have you be real who you are now, there is some godly restraint in there. We understand that. Then to be somebody that you're not. You know, like I said, when I went to a casino or a restaurant, I was going to be a hotel restaurant manager. When you're going into a special meal, what do you wear? At least this. I mean, that's something nice, right? You're going to a five-star place, and they're all wearing black tie events. What are you going to wear? So is it because you want to stand out as different? wear the blue jeans, the black tie event. I mean, maybe that's the case. But I went wearing my best for something like that. So when I come here, I'm not wearing a tie because you told me to. I'm wearing a tie because years ago, when I became a Christian, it was a very simple concept. I'm coming to a special place. I'm going to meet people that God's brought here. I'm going to wear what I, this is what I feel impressed to wear. I'm going to wear this. If you feel impressed to wear something more casual, get rid of that jacket, quit sweating around, then, then wear that. But be the kind of people who are real. Otherwise, the distinction between good and evil, so what does that have to do with good and evil? It's pretty simple. You're living, a, if we are not ourselves, we're living a lie. So be who God has called you to be. Not what somebody else has called you to be. There's a balance in there. You can search that out. Christ would have a church that labors to separate the evil from the good, whose members will not willingly tolerate wrongdoing. Now, that's a whole other bucket of worms. We could just pour them out on the floor here. But what we're talking about here is, this is not the idea of anything goes. This is talking about good and evil. This is, if you're willing to choose to sin and try to cover it up with good behavior and good works, then the distinction between good and evil in your life has gotten blurred. So come to Christ, allow him to clean that up, and then don't willingly tolerate wrongdoing. We have a child safety policy here. If you're a parent listening to my voice, I'm telling you, you better watch your kids in this church. And it's not because of the members of this church. We live in an I-5 corridor for child trafficking. Do you want to have a millstone on your neck? I mean, that's really what it comes down to me. I'm like, Lord, I don't want a child's picture of God to be shattered in my church. 
So if somebody comes, and this is for those of you who maybe if are visiting here, and, and this, if this is your tendency, then, then we'll have words. If somebody comes to harm a child in this church, or the vulnerable in this church, the elderly in this church, you have to deal with me. I will not stand by and let wrongdoing take place in this church. So parents, watch your children. Recognize as a body, we're looking out for your kids. And recognize if you're a wrongdoer, the shepherd has a rod. Okay? And the shepherd will use the rod. And it's not in a mean way. It's just saying, redirecting you. And if redirecting doesn't work, I tell you what, if it ends up I'm redirecting somebody and it's a wolf in sheep's clothing, then you're out of here. So we do not willingly that. We expel it from our heart and our lives. That's not just with your wrongdoing. I'm looking at my own heart. Is there something that I choose to do that I'm willingly engaging in? You can fill in the blank there. It may not be without all these little things I've talked about. Those things are kind of petty in a way except for the, as far as the safety issue, what is that wrongdoing that you're willing to choose over God? Whatever that is, has to go. Because right now, we're sitting in heavenly courts by faith. The Bible says that the marriage supper of the Lamb has begun. We're pretty clear as we get down to the end of time. So, how do we overcome the synagogue of Satan? Behold, I give of the synagogue of Satan of them that say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet to know that I have loved thee because thou didst keep the words of my patience. Keep the word of my patience. Keep is this idea of putting a fortress around. Putting a full regiment, military force there with bows and arrows and whatever else you can think of in ancient times as far as warfare. Around that as well. A moat. This is what it's saying. You keep the words of my patience. And if you want to look it up, you look up James chapter 5, verse 17 in your Bible. It's pretty clear that the word of Christ requires patience to keep it. So we value the words of Christ so much. And if you want to turn to James, you can. We value his words so much that we are willing to go through anything for them. My bookmarks keep flipping me over to Revelation, which is where we're going next. But James chapter 5, you can read the whole thing if you'd like to. James chapter 5, confess, verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another. That's talking about if you have something against one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. This earnestness, this keeping of it, this idea of trusting God no matter what. That's the type of word we have here as far as word of my patience. Patience. Look at the patience of Elijah in that situation. Matthew 18 is an example of this. The keeping of Christ's word requires patience. It also requires a little bit of uncomfortableness. Think about it. If, if somebody in this room offends somebody else, what does our human nature tell us to do? I'm right and they're wrong. That's our human nature. Let's admit it. And you go back through and you rehearse the whole situation and you figure out what they did wrong, what you did right, and you focus just on what you did right. And, and if you never talk to that person, like Matthew 18 talks about, if you never talk to that person, you've just justified everything you've done. And I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to have that between me and that other person when, when the Lord comes. I don't want to use a little fear tactic here, but think about it. I'm right, I'm right, right. And then you've got that problem and, the, and basically... The Lord shows you the whole thing in the great white throne judgment and ends up losing, you end up being lost because of it. Jesus' words are there because he wants us to, to interact with each other when you have that problem. And it takes patience and it takes courage to do that. And those of you who've gone through the process of saying, you know what, what I did to you the other day, when I, when I walked right past you, Don, and I didn't shake your hand and, and I saw your head go downcast and I said, oh, well, you know, I'm busy. I should turn around and shake Don's hand, Right? I should go to Don and say, you know what, I noticed the other day when I walked by you that you seemed a little disappointed, and I'm sorry if I caused that. I should be sensitive enough to do that. Because what happens if I keep that idea in my mind that, oh, who cares? 
Well, eventually that starts reflecting in other, other relationships. And so Jesus talks about this patience of, James talks about this patience of Elijah, how he, he believed God's word, he prayed, and the skies didn't give the rain. And then Jesus' own words talk about how to deal with one another. And instead of insinuating and thinking that you know everything about the other person's side of the story, because that's usually fodder for gossip, when you think you know about the other person's side of the story more than your own, it ends up being that you, you, you judge the situation. But then gossip develops. And then you start talking and peddling what you think is their side of the story, and then you uplift your side of the story more than theirs. And before you know it, you've got a church conflict on your hands. And so if you wonder why I go to Matthew 18 as an example over and over again in this church, it's not because I'm being prescriptive to any one of your situations. I'm just being preventative. I'm saying if that is there, keeping the words of Christ, the words of his patience, is hard work. It takes work but it feels good when you do it. You have to admit that. When you, when you talk to that person and that relationship is reconciled, there's a joy that comes in your heart. Like, wow, I'm sure glad that's... It's like, it's like all of a sudden the wound that was festering, it's all out, it hurts, it for a little, it's a little painful, and then it starts healing. You ever had a thorn or anything like that in your finger or your foot, and, and eventually you get the thing out, and just the, the relief? That's what we're talking about in the body here. And so Jesus says... The way to overcome being that way is to keep like a fortress. Put your full action, your military force around his words. Keep them. This is what others did. We find Christianity after the Reformation, which is what we're talking about, began to spread rapidly. Bible societies developed. Tyndale. Awakenings began. You can look at article after article about this. John Edwards. And I'm not saying these are perfect Christians. I'm just saying that God tried to use them to restore segments that had been forgotten. But from basically the 1600s, 1700s onward, William Carey, others, it began to spread, Christianity, the idea of getting Bibles in everybody's hands. There's one summer you can get, and I, I found this one profound, yet it was such a common source. It was from Wikipedia. After the Reformation, for nearly a hundred years, occupied by their struggle with the Roman Catholic Church, the Protestant churches were not missionary-sending churches. You know why we're not missionary-sending churches as much as we used to be? Because we are engaged in a struggle with the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm not telling you that the beast is not there. I'm just I'm saying it is. But why are we engaging in that struggle? Why are we making it a huge thing of, of and you can watch these YouTube clips of how there's a Jesuit behind everything around. What, are you engaged in hand-to-hand combat with these people? Do you really contact these people and see if what they're teaching is really this way or not? I don't think you do. As a pastor, I do at times. And I've had to stand up for things, even in classes at times, that I knew were Jesuit type of things, that were from some weird, strange, higher critical method. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. But notice, this is a simple commentary saying that the struggle with the Roman Catholic Church hindered, and it has source after source, hindered their missionary effort. So if your beast is your focus... And I'm okay with knowing about the beast. I'm okay with identifying the beast. I'm okay with it all if I can show you now, here's how it undermines Jesus. I'm okay with that. But if that's our total focus, and you call that present truth, you're wrong. Early writings tells us that present truth has to do with the 2300 days. I have been telling you about the 2300 days for the last six churches. The 2300 days have ended and now we are to go before the throne of God with an advocate, basically, to the marriage supper. That's present truth. And then she says the second coming, which is where we're going next after this series. And she says the faith of Jesus. How do you know what the faith of Jesus looks like if you don't look at him? If you say I don't preach present truth, then contact the conference and contact my elders and tell me exactly what I'm supposed to preach. Because Christ crucified the hope of glory, the hope in us. And these three things that she outlines in early writings, pages 62 and 63, mark it down, tell me what I'm supposed to preach. And she tells me every discourse, I'm supposed to talk about a crucified, risen, soon coming Savior. You heard about him crucified already today. He's risen because he's given these messages to John. And we're going to end this thing with a soon coming Savior. This is our focus. Otherwise, we will cease being missionary churches. The gospel will be hindered through us. And many Murrays 
and others that you know will not be reached through you. It was a prayer meeting group at an older church that reached me along with a human agent from that group. If we get so focused inward that we don't go outward, the blood will be on hands that are here today. I hope they're not yours or mine. So I'm here to preach present truth, to encourage that, and to then push outward as much as I can in my time and encourage you to do the same. So that was what was happening before. And that's during the Reformation. But in the centuries that followed, the Protestant churches began sending missionaries in increasing numbers. God opened up a door because persecution dwindled, spreading the proclamation of the Christian message to previously unreached people. The receptivity was there. The opportunity was there. The technology was there. Last night I was watching a documentary before Sabbath. It was talking about why were all these advances in Greek civilization? Especially leading up to the time of Jesus. And it's like, I almost wanted to say it. Duh! It's because Christ wanted to use that culture that had permeated the whole known world, the Koine Greek and all of this, to take the gospel to them. But the guy never said that. This is what happened then. He wanted this church message, the Bible itself, just getting that Bible out there was important when it had been chained before that, along with all the other things. You would not be sitting here today if they had not gone outward. I would not be standing here today if they had not gone outward. We are a continuation of a Protestant Reformation. We're not, we, are not, we say with some people, we're not Protestant. We have a Reformation history. We're told we need continually revival and reformation. And so in that sense, we are a continuation. And so Laodicea becomes the church of the shut door. They don't let Jesus in, and they don't take Jesus out. Philadelphia is the church of the open door. They allow Jesus in, and they take Jesus out. It's quite a contrast at the end of the seven churches. Our history is the same. Are we a continuation of the Reformation? I think we are, because God has given us teachings that people need to know. And we have an open door today. This is written in 1901. Whenever tempted, we have this open door to behold. No power can hide us from the light of the glory which shines from the threshold of heaven. Along the whole length of the ladder we are to climb. You remember Jacob's ladder in the Old Testament? There's a vision. And we saw Jesus in the New Testament. He saw the angels going up and down. For the Lord has given us strength in his strength, courage in his courage, light in his light. When the powers of darkness are overcome, in each one of our lives we need that, when the light of the glory of God floods the world, we shall see and understand more clearly than we do today. I don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. But as we, those two wins, when the powers of darkness are overcome, that's what we're focusing on, overcoming, overcoming, overcoming. When the light of the glory of God floods the world, if each one of us is a fountain, then you would think eventually there would be a worldwide flood, spiritually speaking. Because it's preparing for the worldwide flood of fire. So I want them to hear the water of life. And I want to be that fountain. We shall see and understand more clearly than we do today eventually if we only realize that the glory of God is round about us. It's already here. That heaven is nearer earth than we suppose. We should have a heaven in our homes while preparing for the heaven above. And the heaven in the home comes to heaven in the church when we come together. If there's no heaven in the home, there's hell in the home. Then there's skeletons that come along into the church. But... I think we have an open door. It's pretty clear here. To heaven. Jesus has opened that door. He said, come in. Here's my father. And then bring other children with you. That's what he's calling us to do. And so the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 12, this message to the the church of Philadelphia continues. Hold fast, basically. Overcome. He says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God. You say, well, you're shackled, right? No, no, it's talking. It's, it's a symbol of an idea of, if you go through the Old Testament, it's this idea of bound to the Lord. You know, like Samuel and others, they went, oh, they went places, didn't they? Didn't Samuel go places? Yeah, he, he told Saul all about his donkey and everything. So you find that it's, it's, a, it's a statement that means you're totally committed to the Lord forever, bound to him. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem 
That's quite a name. The name of my God and the name of the city of my God. You'll write that beautiful name. And so today, I'm putting before you the idea of we can be overcoming witnesses if we recognize an open door exists in our hearts if we'll let Christ in. And then that open door goes outward. But it begins by letting him change our names. We have to go from being the ones who seem to be wounded, outcast, lowly, afraid, to basically confidence, joyfulness, overcoming one, faithfulness, friend of God. Those are the ones who have the names of God. One who seeks my face. So as this song plays, I know some of you have been singing it as you've getting to know it. Those of you who don't, feel free to listen to the words and say, God, is there an area of my life that I need a change in? If so, begin changing me today so I can be the overcomer you'd have me to be and the friend that has this new name. in heaven we're thankful that we can be overcoming ones and as Philadelphia reminds us we can love one another and love you so much that we can not only be overcoming ones but overcoming witnesses the church of the open door open door to our hearts 
and an open door out to the world and our each other. And so give us that balance, we pray, Lord, and give us that love and strengthen us even if we feel weak at times. Guide us each day of the journey until we see you face to face and get this new name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.